Welcome to Some Like It Pops List of Palooza, episode 11. I'm Matt Tamanini, and as always, I'm joined by Jennifer McHugh. Jen, you ready to count down some movies that came out before I was even thought of? Hey, I wasn't even thought of in 1970 either, so, you know. Yeah, but you were much closer to being thought of than I was. Yes, let's do this. All right, you can follow Jen on Twitter at EpineQ, that's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q, and you can follow me at B-W-W-M-A-T-T. You can find all episodes of Some Like It Pop, including lists of paloozas and special mini-episodes on BroadwayWorld.com, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So please subscribe so that you can get every episode of Some Like It Pop as soon as it's available. Then share the sheer all-encompassing joy that is Some Like It Pop with everyone that you know. Okay, Jen, we are venturing back into probably the part of pop culture that we have delved into the least amount, and that is movies. We are going to be talking about our favorite movies that were released before 1970. Now, a little caveat, the one time that we've talked about our favorite movies, we talked about our favorite summer movies. One movie that was in my top, I think two or three, was Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Um, Since I've already mentioned that, I wanted to keep some of the suspense. So uh, even though that would technically be at the top of my list... I'm going to um, eliminate that. So you already know that that's at the top, but I'm going to skip that one and give you 10 other ones. Are you okay with that? I think I can live with it, yes. Okay, good. So here's how this will work. I will first give my 10 through 6 favorite movies pre-1970, then Jen will reciprocate and do the same. Then we will alternate our favorites 5 through 1, and then Jen will tell us what our next list is. And we have a pretty special announcement at least in my mind, coming up about our next list of Palooza. So I'm going to start off first and give you my 10 through 6. Jen, at number 10 for me is the all-time comedy Some Like It Hot. Then even though I'm eliminating one Alfred Hitchcock movie from my list with Rear Window, I'm going to throw another one in, and that is Psycho. Then getting into the first of my theater-related films is going to be Mary Poppins. Then I'm going to come up with the seminal coming-of-age classic The Graduate. And then followed by the all-time bogey classic The Maltese Falcon. Hmm, okay. I was wondering if we were going to overlap at all, and I'm starting to lean towards no. Okay. The only thing, the only thing I think we're, we may overlap in is movie musicals, so we'll see okay. if, that, if that happens at all. All right, so Jen, what do you have 10 through 6? Uh, I'm going to start with number 10, Vertigo, from our man Hitchcock, who I think is going to make a, multiple appearances on this list. And number 9 is The Producers, the original film directed by Mel Brooks in 1968. Number eight, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, 1969, by George Roy Hill. Number seven, It Happened One Night, from 1934, with the lovely Clark Gable. And number six would be Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, 1954, directed by (laughs) Stanley Donen. All right. Didn't see that one coming. Good for you. (laughs) Lumberjack musicals are are not something that I thought would have appealed to you. But I guess big strapping men with beards, I guess that kind of makes sense have six brothers how did you not see that coming that's like my childhood that's true all right okay so the next one that i'm going to talk about in my top five is number five and it is one that also has a theatrical connection it is based on in my opinion one of the most important plays in the history of american theater and that is lorraine hansberry's a raisin in the sun the film was directed by daniel petrie and and it came out in 1961 and it starred of course uh, Sidney Potier, Ruby D, Louis Gossett, and his film debut. And it is, in my opinion, one of the most um, powerful films to this day. I've seen the stage version of it multiple times. I've seen the Bruce Norris written sequel, Clybourne Park, multiple times. This is a play that I've read a lot, too. And it is just such a an important film because for the first time in American film, and to a certain extent, American theater, we were able to 
see the lives of a family that could have been really any family, but it was an African-American family, and they dealt with the issues of race and racism and and systematic racism very upfront, and that's what the movie was about. It's about trying to get out of bad situations and being stifled down by people who just didn't want you to. It's one of my favorite plays. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, I, I love a, a Raisin in the Sun. I I don't know the musical version of it, Raisin, at all. Although I feel like I should. But um, as far as I'm concerned, this is this is one of the best. Jen. This is going to be one of those moments where you give me your disgust. But one, I've never read the play, and two, I've never seen the movie. How are you a theater there you go. degree Here holder Here that you've never even read? Okay. I, you should watch the movie, and I, and I think you'd appreciate the film as much. There's a 2008 um, TV version that came up uh, came out on ABC that's directed by Kenny Leon, who directed the Broadway revival. He also recently directed um, Hairspray Live, but it starred the great Audrey McDonald uh, as well as Felicia Rashad and Heaven Help Us All, P Diddy, Aww. P Diddy in the Sidney Poitier role. Um, other than him, it was pretty good, but. But yeah, definitely, I, I would put this on, on the list of ones to see because it's, um, to this day, it, it holds up as being incredibly powerful. For the record, in this show, he went by Sean Combs because he is nothing if not a professional. I hate you. Uh, my number five, I don't have a lot to say about it because I've gushed about it in many, many times. And I know you don't care, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It could have easily been my number one, but I'm trying to be more interesting. So it's 1965's The Sound of Music, directed by Robert Wise. One of the most beautiful films ever. Uh, visited Austria, did the tour. Glad to see that Lin-Manuel Miranda's father made them do the same thing that I make everyone do. <laughs> so I love The Sound of Music unapologetically. What is that? Twirling on the hill? Yep. Walking through the streets of Salzburg, dancing on the fountains, everything. Okay. All right, not my favorite, but I don't begrudge you that. My number four is another movie musical. However, this one did not start on the stage. This one actually started as a film, then eventually became a much less effective stage show. And that is Singing in the Rain, directed by Gene Kelly, who also stars, obviously, as well as Stanley Donnan. It has a screenplay and music and lyrics by Betty Condon and Adolph Green, obviously one of the great writing teams in Broadway history as well. There is just something so exciting. And when we talked about La La Land last uh, on last episode, there, we talk, I, I talked about how I felt that movie was very cynical and didn't have the optimism that those golden age of movie musicals had. And that is embodied, if nothing else, by Singing in the Rain between Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and, and Debbie Reynolds and, and Sid Charisse and, um, and all these others. It is, is just coursing through every vein of this movie is optimism and hope and i love it i i I love all of the classic things in it like the the singing in the rain song but to me jen if we ever did a list of our favorite scenes in movie history uh, donald o'connor as cosmo brown's um, rendition of make them laugh might be at the top of my list of favorite scenes that is as far as i'm concerned the height of perfect movie musical filmmaking it is just fantastic, and I love singing in the rain. Sorry. That's my number four, too. Is it really? Yeah. 1952. I didn't mention the year. 1952. Yeah, it's my number four. Everything he just said. Make him laugh is one of the greatest things in cinematic history. I'll take a left turn and say one of my favorite scenes is Moses Supposes, because it's some of the greatest mm-hmm. tap dancing I've ever seen in my life. Yes. And I still, even after studying tap dance for 10 years, 
cannot do the move that the two of them do on the top of the desk. I have tried. I have slowed it down. <laughs> I have analyzed it. It is not possible for human feet to do that. But everything he just said, it's brilliant. It's Gene Kelly. It's wonderful. If I could come back and maybe not be uh, somebody else, but have the skill set of a certain performer, it would probably be Gene Kelly because Gene Kelly is such a brilliant dancer, but he looks like a football player when he's dancing. You know, he looks like a halfback, you know, making moves in the hole. He's so athletic. And, and I hate to, you know, put these masculine terms on it to, to belittle dancers who aren't that, but he had a very athletic approach to dancing, and I love that. I wish I could tap dance and just dance in general like Gene Kelly because he is the absolute best as far as I'm concerned. That's really funny because I'm going to tie everything you just said into my number three, but you go ahead. All right, my number three is one that I think we might overlap on and it might surprise the hell out of you, Jen. But my number three is a movie that satirizes the Cold War and the nuclear arms race between the United States and the USSR. And that is the uh, 1964 Stanley Kubrick classic, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This is an absolutely bonkers, weird film with a great cast. Peter Sellers, George C. Scott, um, a very young James Earl Jones. And for me, I, I honestly, if you asked me to kind of break down the plot of this movie, Jen, I don't know that I could actually do it justice or even remember all of it. But the visuals of this black and white film are just so stirring and and, and so iconic that I, to me, it stuck with me all these years, even though I probably haven't seen it in a decade. And probably the first time I saw it was 20 years ago. Um, the scene where... The uh, Major Kong is writing the bomb down to the ground. It is just so um, unique. And Stanley Kubrick is one of the best filmmakers of all time. I have his box set uh, on my bookshelf. I'm looking at it right now of all of the films he directed. He's just absolutely um, one of the best ever. And I love Dr. Strangelove. It doesn't surprise me. Um, We didn't overlap on it, but... That doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's valid. <laughs> well, no, I just didn't. I just didn't know if you thought that that would be one that made my list. But I'm glad you appreciate that one. All right, what do you have as number three, Jen? Uh, my number three is a movie that a lot of people think isn't as great as the stage show because of the casting choice of someone so young. But it's one of my favorite movies ever, and I could literally stand up and reenact it, uh, blocking step for step, and that is 1969's Hello, Dolly, directed by Gene Kelly. Mm. And I'm tying it into what you said about his athleticism because there's literally a line in it that uh, when they're dancing and Cornelius mentions that his dancing is so amazing and and Dolly, a.k.a. Barbara Streisand, says, I think the word I I think I'd use is athletic. (laughs) That's that's an insult in that movie. Yeah. (laughs) The choreography is by Michael Kidd and it's directed by Gene Kelly. So it's just this epic telling of this story all over um new york and i just i love it her entrance into you know the harmonia gardens where she takes a step and the band starts and she runs into louis armstrong it's just oh dear god i watch it all the time (laughs) stop it and it's on netflix now so um i've been watching it a little too much lately but i really really enjoy it yeah and and you're right kind of the big thing about that movie is that barbara streisand was like in her mid twenties at that point playing this widow uh, matchmaker who 
eventually falls in love with Walter Matthau. A little weird. Um, probably much more appropriate to have Bette Midler and and David Hyde Pierce in this upcoming Broadway revival. But, um, Jen, you, you do know who plays Cornelius. You mentioned Cornelius. You do know who that is, don't you? Uh, yeah, Matt. I know that it's Michael Crawford, who I okay. saw in Phantom of the Opera when I was in high school. Okay. Also, I know that Tommy Toon um, is in mm-hmm. it, and I know that there's a lot of people in it, especially the poor soul who plays Barnaby, who was murdered a few years later. And oh, I didn't know that. Yes, he was murdered in his driveway here in Pasadena because I saw it on the Dearly Departed tours. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's not creepy well, at all. That's, that's me. Anywho. This is two, epi- two episodes in a row where we mention the <laughs> Dearly Departed tour and shows you what Jen does in her free time. I'm just going to start working that into every episode. <laughs> you probably could. You probably could. Sticking, you're going to notice a theme with most of my top five, and I think I have a feeling Jen's too. Number two and number one for me, uh, I very easily could have gone back and forth, but number one has a little bit more of a sentimental pull for me, um, so that's why it's number one. But number two for me is the 1961 film adaptation of the classic Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Lawrence, and Stephen Sondheim musical, West Side Story. Um, it is directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. I think I've mentioned this one on a previous episode before. I'm, I don't know if it was on a list or not, but I don't care. I love this one so much. Obviously, everyone knows West Side Story. It's a At the time, it was a modern-day telling of Romeo and Juliet set amongst the gang life of New York City. The film starred uh, Natalie Wood as Maria, even though her singing voice was dubbed by Marnie Nixon. Richard Boehmer uh, played Tony, even though his singing voice was dubbed by Jimmy Bryant. Russ Tamblin, Amber Tamblin's father, played Riff. Rita Moreno, the great Rita Moreno, played Anita. George Shakiris played Bernardo. Um, John Astin, who later went on to uh, be Gomez Adams and the father of of Rudy himself, Sean Astin played Gladhand, who was uh, in the the dance at the gym scene. This is just one of the most beautiful pieces of musical theater, and those don't always translate, as we said before, to the screen very well. But this one does. I, I think um, they actually did some reordering of songs for the film that actually makes it make sense a little more with the song Cool and Officer Krupke. I think the, the, the sequence of songs works better in the film than it does on stage. Um, this is one that I've seen probably a dozen times, if not more, and I love it every time. It won Best Picture. Um, it won 11, or it was nominated for Academy Awards and won 10. Um, it is just an absolute, absolutely near perfect piece of filmmaking as far as I'm concerned, Jen. I can't disagree with you. Um, let's not forget, you know, that Richard Boehmer and Russ Tamlin starred in Twin Peaks as well together. But anyway. Um, we would remember that if we ever knew that. <laughs> yes, of course. But yeah, of course, it's perfection. I agree with you about the song order. I didn't. I saw the movie before I saw the stage show, so I was very surprised in the stage show when it was reversed. It didn't make sense to me at all. So I thought that that was a really good choice. Um, but yeah, I think I first watched that in uh, music class in like sixth or seventh grade. We were forced to watch it, and all the dudes were like, I don't want to watch a musical. And then they were all crying at the end. It was awesome. <laughs> dudes crying to musicals is always a good thing. Love it. Yeah. I wouldn't consider myself a dude, but I often cry at musicals. So there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about like bros. 
Yeah, I had this conversation with one of my colleagues, Alan Henry, who is about a decade younger than I am and very much not a bro. I am closer to brodom than he is, but I still think that I'm probably quite far from that, despite my sports obsession. So, all right, Jen, so what is your number two? Well, believe it or not, that's the end of my musicals. So Uh, may blow your mind. Uh, Number two is a movie that my best friend Jenna recommended to me about five years ago. I had never seen it before, and it has since become one of my favorite movies. I know it's her favorite movie, and that is 1938's Bringing Up Baby. Hmm. Do you know that movie? I know the name, but I don't know the film itself. It stars Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, um, two hacks from back in the day. They didn't do much after this. (laughs) And um, it's really just like a screwball comedy. Literally, Katherine Hepburn is hilarious. You always think of her as this amazing dramatic actress, but man, is she funny. And um, back in the day with her and the beautiful Cary Grant just joking around. Cary Grant plays a nerd. I mean. <laughs> that doesn't but, happen uh, often. Baby in the movie, spoiler alert, is a uh, leopard <laughs> named Baby. So it's just okay. a little, it's just a, it, I highly recommend it. It's just silly. It's so fun to see these two on screen together, just being screwballs and it's farcical and um, it's so enjoyable. And if you just need a lighthearted old classic movie to watch, I highly recommend it. That's funny because this is actually, uh, a, this has a connection to one that I, that probably finished maybe 12 on my list. Um, and that is a movie that also starred Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, and that is 1940s The Philadelphia Story, where it's not a screwball comedy. It's more of a modern drawing room comedy. Um, It also starred some guy named James Stewart. I think he often went by Jimmy. Um, But it's another movie that I love as well, and I've seen the stage show of that as well many times. There was a musical adaptation of it called High Society. Jen, do you know why I especially love the musical High Society? Oh, tell me. Because when this uh, musical came to Broadway in 1998, it featured a plucky young actress who I think was maybe at the time, maybe 12, 13 years old. And she earned a Tony nomination um, at that ripe young age for high society. And her name was one Anna Kendrick. So, uh, of course, I've seen this musical not with her, but um, this will always anything Anna Kendrick related holds a special place in my heart. Same. Yep. So my number one, um, while you are done with your movie musicals, I am not. The number one in my list, and I have a a weird kind of relationship with this film. Um, I think I've mentioned this before, so this might be a redundant story, whether it was on this podcast or something on um, today on Broadway or this week on Broadway. But um, in seventh grade, we had a woman um, named Mrs. Readerer who came to my little private Catholic uh, school and took the seventh graders. And for two weeks, we worked on... Shakespeare, acting, scenes, knowing the plays or whatever. And I loved it. After that, seeing an opportunity to indoctrinate their oldest grandson um, with a love for theater, my grandparents um, were going to take me along with them, and they had season tickets, to see the national touring production of of My Fair Lady. In preparation, because I like to be prepared, I watched the movie uh, ahead of time. I didn't make it through that movie. I didn't like it. I thought it was boring. So I was not looking forward to seeing My Fair Lady on stage. I thought I'd just grin and bear it and tell my grandparents thank you and I love them and then never do that again. However, (laughs) Richard Chamberlain and Melissa Errico, who Melissa Errico actually was a Tony nominee for High Society that I just mentioned, 
Um, they were in this tour. It was a pre-Broadway tour. They went on to, to do the production on Broadway. Um, that production that I saw at the Ohio Theater in Columbus absolutely changed my life. And I have now watched the movie version of My Fair Lady many, many times. It's a 1964 adaptation of the Lerner and Lowe film, or the Lerner and Lowe musical, like the stage version. It stars Rex Harrison uh, as Professor Henry Higgins. It also stars Stanley Holloway, who reprises his role from stage as um, Alfred P. Doolittle. The one difference from the original Broadway production um, in terms of the major casting to the screen is that Julie Andrews did not recreate her role of Eliza Doolittle in the film. She was replaced by Audrey Hepburn, no relation to Catherine. And like Maria from uh, West Side Story, a lot of her singing voice was dubbed by one Marnie Nixon. This is obviously the story of George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, um, about a British flower girl, a Cockney flower girl, who learns to speak um, after being sent through the ringers by a dialectician and scholar of phonetics, and it changes being able to speak. Being able to speak properly uh, in many ways changes her life, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. Uh, but Jen, for many, many reasons, this film, and in a larger sense, this play, uh, changed my life and changes who I am. So uh, uh, for that reason and for just the sheer brilliance that is My Fair Lady, um, I'm going to put that as number one uh, on my favorite movies pre-1970. I am happy that it makes you happy. <laughs> is this one that you don't like as well? I do not like My Fair Lady at all, no. I, I can still probably listen to this cast album and sing it verbatim from start to finish. I, I think it's one of the most perfect musicals of all time. You put this up there with Gypsy and Guys and Dolls, and I think those could be the, the perfect form of the classic Golden Age American musical. Obviously, we're in a different age now, so musicals aren't written that way as much anymore. But in terms of that, the height, I think those might be the ones. For you. Yeah, yes, absolutely, for me. Jen, um, obviously My Fair Lady is not going to be your number one, so what is your number one? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end my list the way I started it, with Alfred Hitchcock, and mm. talk about not only my favorite movie before 1970, but my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. Do you know what it is? Um, you already said Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um, North by Northwest? Nope. Um, Strangers on a Train? No. Well, I know you hate birds, so I'm guessing it's not the birds. <laughs> it is not the freaking birds. I hate the birds. Um, I'm not sure. What is it? 1948's Rope. Oh, okay. You're going out there then. Oh, I sure am. Um, 1948, and there are very few cuts in this movie. It was very experimental at the time, but Hitchcock did a lot of long shots where there's really no editing, and that wasn't really done at the time, and it made for um, the moving, you know, walls in the scene out of the way on silent rollers and just a lot of really experimental directing. But the basic premise is uh, Jimmy Stewart plays. Have you heard of him? I, I think I mentioned him about five minutes ago. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this was his other movie that he did. And he basically plays <laughs> his, a detective. His, his one other movie that yeah, he did. Yeah. It was this and the one you mentioned. Philadelphia Story. Yeah, and the that one was, I mentioned at the beginning that would have been at the top of my list, uh, right. but I took it off. Other than that, window. that's it. Other than yeah, that, and you know. that movie we mentioned uh, on our regular episode of Some Like It Pop uh, called uh, "The Wonderful Life." Yeah, it's a wonderful life. Yeah, so we've we've we're we're up to our necks in Jimmy Stewart. Well, he plays a detective who arrives at a an apartment, and these two guys had just killed someone, and they're pretty cocky about it. And throughout the movie, he 
unravels the fact that they did not, in fact, commit the perfect murder. But it's really just the style and the, the way of storytelling um, that I love and how he unravels it and the way it's shot. And for me, it's just the best Hitchcock movie. I'm rarely one to say that there are bad Hitchcock movies. There are ones that I like less, but this is my definitely my favorite. And I think it's really underrated in his um, catalog. So I, there's a giant poster of it on my wall, and it's my favorite movie before 1970. Um, I can't say that I've seen um, Rope, but obviously I had, if you put Rear Window back in, I had two Hitchcock films in my top ten. So that might be one I need to see. So, Jen, I think those are good lists. Now, because we are now in December, and because this list of Palooza things started um, with a 2015 year-end episode, we're going to do our last episode of Some Like It Pop for 2016 kind of as a crossover with our last list of Palooza episode of 2016. So you've got to want to give us a rundown of what we're going to do with these. Okay, so... I guess we're going to start a year-end tradition, and when we come back in January to record, we are going to tell you our personal favorite top 10 television shows and top 10 movies of 2016. So I guess we're going to start that doing that every year? Yeah, I think so. We just edited out a bunch of stuff where Jen and I broke down different... Um... <laughs> So different sports loves and hates that is really not appropriate for this but just so you know mommy and daddy here we weren't fighting we actually agree on a lot of this stuff uh, but a, a bet's a bet um and and i will pay up um i definitely will not do it on december 31st but sometime jen um and maybe i'll even let you pick a, a, a day that you think is appropriate um of, of where right. i will what's that i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to go with march 17th then Okay, you want me to wait until until uh, St. Patrick's Day to dress up? I can do that. All right, fair enough. Um, um, Jen, this has been fun. This is our first, I guess, technical, f this is our first full year, right? Because we started doing these um, in September of 2015. Then we got them up on iTunes beginning in January of 2016. So now we have come full circle with one full year of Some Like It Pop available to the mass podcasting listening public. So... We've had a lot of ups and downs, a lot of uh, arguments, but overall, I think it's been a, a positive year in podcasting. Yeah, uh, it feels like it's been 10 years, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, when you get older, things seem to uh, be a little bit more monumental, and we're getting up there in age. But but yeah, one more thing before we close up here, Jen. Um, you, I mean, mainly you, I really haven't done much on this yet, but you have kind of spearheaded a new project that's kind of be a collaboration between something like a pop Broadway world and Broadway radio. That is a new, maybe six, was it six episode uh, podcast series? Yes, it will be uh, a series of interviews that we did. I had the fortune of seeing a brand new musical called Invisible a few months back in the summer. And in meeting the creators, we decided to do a series talking to them about what it takes to get a musical from their heads onto the stage. So we're going to have a series of episodes talking with their creative process, as well as some of the actors who performed in it, some of the creative team behind the scenes, some of the producers, and see where they're at now. And just, just to give our listeners and Broadway Radio's listeners an idea of just how much it takes to get that to happen. Yeah, and this is something that, um, obviously, I haven't seen the show because I think when you saw it, was it playing the Los Angeles Fringe Festival when you saw it? Is that what it was? Nope, they just did a staged reading at okay. a local theater, and um, 
their listeners of our podcast. Shout out to the Davids. And <laughs> they invited me. And so I went and we struck up a relationship. And so we're just delving into their processes. Yeah, since I obviously didn't get to see it because it's on the opposite side of the country from me, um, I didn't know much about it. But when, as I've listened to these interviews, it it sounds like an incredible show, but you're just struck by how much work goes into this um, and how long they've been working at this and, and the successes that they've had along the way that have kind of been growing to where this is a show that I would imagine, Jen, based on the trajectory that they're on within the next year or two, will make a big splash in the Southern California area and then hopefully in other places, maybe in New York in the months and years after that, because um, they definitely seem to be doing things the right way and, and making all the right moves. I, heard, I sure hope so. They're great guys. It's a great show, and they've uh, done a lot of work, and I, I think they're going to see a lot of success with it. So we are going to try and help and promote uh, what they've gone through and where they're at and you, where you can catch it. Yeah, and uh, if nothing else, when this wins a bunch of Tonys, you can say, hey, I heard about that on some like a pop on Broadway radio. And uh, then we can claim some glory. Maybe they can get us tickets or something. Do you hear that, Davids? When you win your Tonys, you better be thanking Some Like It Pop and Jen and Matt. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening to Some Like It Pop's List of Palooza, Episode 11. You can find all of our episodes on BroadwayWorld.com, and you can get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SLIP Podcast, and you can follow Jen at Eponine Q, and you can find me at PWW Matt. We'll be back, and Jen and I will count down our top 10 favorite TV shows and movies of 2016. That should always be fun. So until then, we'll see you around the Broadway world. Number eight, no big surprise here, the Rocky Horror Picture Show from 19... Oh, that's from 1975. Shit. Sorry. I'm an idiot. And there was a move... Or there was... There was a mutical... Sorry. 